Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known. The Gospel lesson for today is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43, and this can be found on page 1050 of the Pew Bible. Today's scripture describes the details of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. A reading from Luke chapter 23, beginning with the 32nd verse. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Throughout life, I've been involved in organizations that prided themselves on one major thing, and that's putting their members through pain. This first started at Charlotte High on the football field when I was a fighting tarpon. And I remember the summer practices in the South Florida heat. Yeah, by the way, my high school mascot was a tarpon. Tell me you're from Florida without telling me you're from Florida. But I guess my itch for pain wasn't quite satisfied when I graduated high school. So upon graduation, I became a counselor at a camp called Deerfoot Lodge. Deerfoot is an all-boys Christian camp in upstate New York, and they now have a location in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. And by the way, I love Deerfoot. I can't wait to send my son there. But Deerfoot prides itself on two things, physical and spiritual discipline. For example, in pre-camp, We would wake up early in the morning to run miles and miles together to get into better shape. And during camp, in session, we would do something called 3012, where we would do 3,000 push-ups in two weeks and memorize 12 Bible verses. For those of you that are trying to do the math, that's 215 push-ups a day. But upon graduation from college, I still wasn't quite satisfied for pain, And so I joined an organization that I think has actually perfected the use of pain on its members. And that's the United States Army. (laughs) From waking up at oh dark 30 for physical training, 
to challenge courses, to 40-mile ruck marches. The army loves pain. And by this point, you're probably thinking, well, Pastor David, you're just a masochist. You chose all these things, and you're right. But in my defense, there's something very important to qualify with all of this pain I subjected myself to. You see, all of this pain at Deerfoot, in high school, at the army, it was all intended for a greater purpose. For example, that pain of summer practices at Charlotte High was intended to make me a better player on the field. The pain of running every morning at Deerfoot and doing all those push-ups was intended to strengthen my back and my legs so that I could hike in the Adirondacks in the high peaks carrying a heavy pack. The pain I experienced in army training was intended to prepare me for a mobilization, which it did, where I'd be wearing 80 pounds of body armor for hours on end. You see, all of this was pain with a purpose. And I mentioned pain with a greater purpose this morning because of what we are about to look at in the scriptures, the cross of Jesus. You see, because in the cross of Jesus, what I believe is we're going to see the most purposeful pain ever in history. Because in the cross of Jesus, what we witness is both the power and the provision of God. So let's dive into our passage this morning in Luke 23, starting in verse 32, to look at the purposeful pain of the cross. It says this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Luke says very simply here in the gospel, there they crucified him. What a loaded statement. And maybe you've wondered why the gospel authors don't go into more detail in the gospels about crucifixion. Why don't they provide more color, maybe you've thought. Well, I think the reason is simple, and it's because Luke and the other gospel authors understood something, and that's that their original audience would have known exactly what this phrase meant. There, they crucified him. You see, although the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, they did perfect it with one major goal, deterrence. And for this reason, the Roman Empire made their crucifixions extremely public and extremely memorable. You see, their hope was that all who witnessed a crucifixion would never forget it and wouldn't so much as have an ill thought against the empire. I think this is why the original readers knew exactly what this line meant. There they crucified him. So what was a Roman crucifixion like? Well, since a recent archaeological discovery in 1968 in Jerusalem, where they unearthed the body of a man crucified in the second century, we actually have a much better idea. For example, we now know because of where the wounds were in the sides of the ankles and in the wrists, that the cross was most likely a short device and the individual hung on it was merely an inch or two off the ground. And this was intentional 
so that those watching could walk up to the person on the cross and scream in their face and spit on them and laugh at them. We also noticed on this man's body that his legs ended up being bent at an extreme angle for hours. You see, Roman crucifixions, depending on how physically fit the person was who was being executed in the crucifixion, they could last hours or they could last days. By the way, you can find this man's bones that they exhumed in 1968 in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. I've seen them. And they're right next to the stone with Pilate's name on it. And with the, uh, with the bone box of the high priest Caiaphas who interrogated Jesus, it's important to remember that these are real events and real people. Now, I'm somewhat of a visual person, and there is a painting that I think depicts this scene quite well. But for those of you who are squeamish, I just want to encourage you to look away for a moment. Max, you can put that picture up now. Crucifixion was the height of pain and the depth of shame. This painting was painted by a late 19th century painter, Nikolai Gay, a Russian painter. And if you feel scandalized by this painting, you're in good company because uh, the Russian czar actually made it illegal. He banned it as blasphemous because it was so upsetting to him. Now, as you look at this image, I want you to imagine you're standing there with John. You see, all the other disciples abandoned Jesus at the cross, but John showed up. And John would use one word to define what's taking place here. Love. Now, why would John use that word to define this scene? You can take that image down now, Max. Well, I think John uses the word love to define this whole scene because John knew something that most of the other people at the crucifixion didn't know. And that's that Jesus chose this. He chose to go to the cross for you and for me. In fact, early in the gospel of John, in John chapter 10, he's talking to the disciples about his mission. And he says this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. So this begs a question, why would Jesus do this? Why would someone choose this much pain? And I think it's because Jesus knew his pain had a greater purpose, a purpose that served you and me. And we can see that purpose in the next verse, in verse 34, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus, he's mere inches off the ground. And he's surrounded by Roman soldiers gambling for his clothing, by the criminals on the crosses reviling him by the religious leaders mocking him and by the crowd blaspheming him. And as he hangs there in all of his pain, 
He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. And he prays, Father, forgive them. This is a prayer of unmatched mercy and love. And this is a prayer that reveals Jesus' greater purpose on the cross. So what was the greater purpose of the cross? Well, the cross's purpose was to provide for our greatest need, forgiveness. Believe it or not, forgiveness is what you and I need more than anything else. And that's what's taking place right here. Jesus is paying the price for our forgiveness and for our restoration to God the Father. You see, and when we come to believe in Jesus, when we accept him as a payment for our forgiveness, that changes things for us forever. So what does it mean practically when we accept him and we receive his forgiveness? Well, it means on your best day you're forgiven and on your worst day you're forgiven. It means when you're sober you're forgiven and when you're stuck in the throes of addiction and you don't, can't find a way out, you're forgiven. It means when your marriage is going great, you're forgiven. And when your marriage has absolutely blown up, and it's over. You're forgiven. It means when you are filled with joy and peace, you're forgiven. And when you're filled with anxiety and fear, you're forgiven. You see, the purpose of the cross is primarily for us and our forgiveness. And this is so important because what the cross reveals is that our forgiveness is not contingent on our performance. You see, Christianity, it's not about doing enough good things for God to like you because the work's already done. You see, our forgiveness hinges on the performance of someone else, on Jesus. And I remember where I was when I think I fully understood this for the first time. I was a freshman in college attending Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida, and I was in a revival meeting and this older man preached about mercy. And it was like the first time I recognized that Jesus had done this for me so that my sins could be washed away. And it absolutely wrecked me and changed my life forever. You see, and when we get this, when it drops from our head to our heart, it's when we're able to actually behold the true power of the cross. And that's what we see looking on in verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Notice Luke is focusing here on this king language. And he's doing something quite masterful. You see, what Luke is displaying here is the power of God. And you might be thinking, you know, pastor, what do you mean by power? These people are mocking Jesus. They're jeering at him. And he's not doing anything. But notice, 
He is doing something. He's dying for them and for us. You see, Luke, he's contrasting the power of two incredibly different kingdoms here, the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God, the right side up kingdom and the upside down kingdom. You see here in the kingdom of Rome, the upside, the right side up kingdom says, if you get in our way, we'll crush you. But in the upside down kingdom, Jesus says, if you get in my way, I'll be crushed for you. You see, the kingdom of Rome says, if you rebel against us, we'll put you on a cross. But in the upside down kingdom, Jesus says, because of your rebellion, I'll get on the cross. This is the power of God. And this is what we witness in the crucifixion. And two of the closest witnesses to the power of God are those being crucified right next to Jesus. And as they witness the power of God, what I find so interesting is they have two extremely different reactions. Let's read on about that in verse 39. It says this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Two men, both criminals, both being executed for their crimes, both witnessing the same power, but having two opposite responses. Notice one joins the crowd in condemning Jesus, but the other defends him. You see, what I find so interesting about the two criminals is their deeds are exactly the same. They've done the same things their whole lives. But their responses to Jesus, their posture in their approach to Jesus is different. And one of them is starting to get it. He's starting to understand who Jesus is. But he's not all the way there. You can tell by what he says. He goes on, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's like he's recognizing Jesus is different than him, but that he still feels unworthy to be involved with him. And I've met many people like this. In fact, some time ago, I was counseling a veteran who had fought in World War II. He was 100 years old. And he had this very same attitude. He believed in Jesus, but like the thief on the cross, he had come to a point of resignation. He thought that God was too righteous and too holy to ever allow him into eternity. And I remember he said something like this, David, you don't know what I've done. I've, been too, I've done too much to be forgiven. And I respect God so much that I know he won't welcome me into glory. And this was my response. You say you respect God, but I don't think you respect him enough. Because if you did, you'd trust him at his word. And he says, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sins 
and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far do I remove your wickedness from you. And this man recognized that his salvation, it actually wasn't about him at all. It was about Christ. And so maybe you're here this morning and you feel the same way. Maybe you feel like you've done too much to be forgiven. Or maybe you have a family member or a friend you think who's too far gone. Well, how does Jesus respond to someone with this attitude? Well, I love Jesus' response in verse 43. It's so indicative of his character. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, go make restitution for all those people you've stolen from and you'll be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, pray this prayer after me and you'll be in paradise. He doesn't say, get baptized and you'll be in paradise. No, all he says to this criminal who's being executed for his crimes is today you will be with me in paradise. The apostle Paul would go on to explain this scene in the book of Ephesians by saying that we are saved by grace through faith. And there's no better example of this than the thief on the cross. I love what one commentator says. He says that the thief could neither lift hand nor foot towards the kingdom of God. He couldn't do anything good. He was pinned to a cross. You see, and this is the provision of the cross that we are saved through Jesus' work and not through our own. And there are two groups of people that have a really hard time accepting the provision of the cross. The first group is those that have been very, very bad, and we've talked about them. But the second group is those who've been very, very good. And I know that's many of you in the congregation. Right about now, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, well, pastor, I'm not that bad. I don't think I would deserve to go on a cross. And you're probably right. Many of you have been given what I would call the gift of early grace. And what do I mean by that? Well, that you grew up in a Christian home and your parents prayed with you and they read the Bible with you and you accepted Jesus when you were 10 and you meant it. Praise God. And maybe you've slipped up along the way, but for the most part, you've lived in relationship with God. This is what I mean by early grace. I mean that God intercepted your life when you were so young you didn't have time to make a total mess out of it. You weren't a crack addict and a car thief. You were 10. Now, if you're in this group, God will give you a gift every once in a while where he will remind you of your own potential for sin. It's like he'll lift up the cellar door of your soul to show you your own depravity. For example, one day your kids will drive you absolutely nuts and you'll go off on anger in them, anger that you didn't even know you had in you. The only word to use to define it would be demonic. And you realize in that moment how sinful you truly are. You see, these moments are actually a gift from God. He's like, it's like he's saying, wake up. Do you know your own potential for evil? And these moments are a gift to us who've received early grace because there's really only one prerequisite in receiving the provision of the cross. And that's knowing 
that you need it. You see, here's the beauty about the power and provision of the cross. Whether you've been very, very good or very, very bad, it's not really about you. Rather, it's about the faithfulness of Jesus and it's about his finished work. So what, accept, what happens when we accept this finished work? Well, Jesus, he says to us the same thing that he says to the thief on the cross. You will be with me in paradise. And what stands out to me about this phrase is not actually the word paradise. It's actually the word me. Think about how personal that is. Jesus says to each one of us, you'll be with me in paradise. It reminds me of what the New Testament authors talk about when they talk about heaven. Whenever Paul talks about heaven, he's not concerned about what's going to be there. Am I going to be golfing? He's concerned about who's going to be there. Because Paul just wants to be with Christ. Because he knew that Christ just wanted to be with him. You see, this is the relational power of our Lord. And this is the beauty of the cross. In it, we find both God's power and provision. Thanks be to God. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.